Hi, I'm Bryce. Uh, and I'm Will. And this is SideQuest. We did this, strangely, as the first thing that we said huh. on recording. Huh. Well, maybe we're growing up. I know. Normally we talk for like 10 or 15 minutes Well, before. I really wanted to say something about the practice of lifting things just to put them back down where they were. <laughs> um, but it just seems silly. I mean, yeah. and you, you used to have something very similar to my job mm-hmm. um, insofar as we were colleagues in the yeah. same small organization <laughs> with dubious methods of distributing labor. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's legitimate as uh, a critique. Or questionable, at least. Okay. Maybe not dubious. Yeah. I think there are answers to many of the questions. But you could ask the questions. It's definitely questionable. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's um, true. But I think my job just produces a lot of times when I need to move a heavy object somewhere. And I think that just makes the idea of doing it recreationally seem silly. Well, a lot of people's jobs don't do that. Right. And I know my job doesn't do it enough to actually make me fit. Yeah. You could look at me and know. Um, But still, every time someone is just lifting a heavy object and putting it down, I'm like, I still have a 70-pound broken television on the second floor of a building that needs to be moved. Why didn't you just move that? I personally pick up heavy objects and put them down sometimes. Why didn't you just move this TV? You know where it is. You know how it got broken. Well, because I don't really want to do cardio to get over to where the TV is. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to mix cardio in with a lot of things. We might be in the wrong side quest (laughs) podcast. Uh, yeah. Because there's the other one. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We talk not about fitness. Yeah, so if you accidentally got here because you were attempting to listen to the other side quest... And you're like, they sound like they don't have the same voice, but they're talking about fitness in a really weird and naive way. (laughs) Also, they are a singular side quest. Uh, That's true. We are multiple side quests. Yeah. So it's very very different. 100% by one letter off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But here we are. And we're side quests and you're listening to us. True. Yeah. Whoever you are. If no one is, then it doesn't matter. We can right. say well, whatever then, we well, want. Well, then that utterance will have never been played, and so it will uh-huh. never become false. That's true. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is episode 12 that we're recording right now. Nice. That's um three weeks of podcast. Uh, What? Wait, no. That's just not true. <laughs> That's not what I meant to say. Three months? I meant to say three months of podcast. Right. It depends weekly. on which three yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Definitely. Because sometimes we- there's an extra. Yeah, they're definitely not, like, the Mm -hmm. one number of weeks that a month never is, or rarely is, is four. Yeah, I was just thinking of this recently about how trying to fit things more than once a week into your schedule implies that you must have a big section of time between doing it and a small one. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of rock climbing and how, ideally, if I was going to do that again, which I would love to do, I like rock climbing a lot, I would go every four days. Huh. But this does not fit a weekly schedule. Right. That because is. seven is prime. Yeah, so you can either go every day. Right. Or once a week. Or once a week. Or... Or you have to have a big gap and a little gap. Yeah. And then you're fighting with the rest of the world because the world is all about weekly scheduling. Right. Why is a week a prime number of days? Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah. It's funny because we took the exact opposite strategy with hours and minutes. Yeah. And the whole imperial measurement system in general. Mm -hmm. We like pick numbers that can be easily divided. Right. So 60 is divisible by 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and not 7. But still, why would you want to divide anything by 7? I'm looking at you days of the week. <laughs> yeah, it, right. It is basically impossible to know whether something is divisible by seven, right? You know, if you are called upon to know whether a number is prime, you're like one, no, two, no, three, no, four, no, five, no, six, no, seven. Uh, Wait, some of those were prime. No, no. I guess what I'm saying is you, you're dividing by, right? All right. Oh. So how do I check if right? it's divisible by seven? Yeah, because there's no like good tricks. Oh. But I'm just saying 7 is an annoying number. Oh, yeah. And both checking divisibility of 7 and by 7. Hmm. Right? Like, that's the problem mm. with the year. Oh. Um, what? <laughs> so it's the problem with the months, is what I meant to say. Okay. I don't uh, know where you're going with this. <laughs> it's the problem with the months. Uh, let's move on. All right. <laughs> there are so few numbers that are divisible by 7 that only February works. Oh. That's my point. Okay. Sure. So February... But February is a problem in every other way. Exactly. <laughs> so um, seven is the problem. Okay. And it could take February with it. Right. Yeah, that'd be fine. 
Well, I mean, living in New England, <laughs> nobody really is very interested in February. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> now that we've discussed the date. No, we didn't even do that. <laughs> no, I don't know what date it is. Who could know? It's going to be different when you're listening than yeah, when we're It's different talking. almost every day. <laughs> There's that one day. But, uh, so what happened this week? Nothing, really. No, nothing on your end. I had some momentous occasions. Okay. So I, I work with kids. I teach... A lot of different things. Some of the things I teach are game design oriented. Some of them are programming oriented. Mm -hmm. Some of them are completely unrelated to those things. It involves like cardboard or mm -hmm. fiction. It's a pretty wide variety of things I end up teaching. But one of the things I teach a lot of is math. And I don't, I don't know how well you remember middle school math or, or anyone, but one of the things that people are always asking is like, when is this going to be useful? Right. Oh, well, that's very funny because then I went on to do a lot of math afterwards yeah. and I learned algebra in middle school and I proceeded to do a tremendous quantity of algebra for the next seven years, something like that. Right. And so for me, the middle school math was useful a lot for right. a long time. Yeah, but I guess one of the things that students are always claiming mm -hmm. is that they don't need to learn this because it's not useful. And, and I understand the reason that they are claiming this is because the motivation for learning it has been insufficiently presented. Mm. Um, yeah, that's often the case. So it's not obvious to them, right? So mm -hmm. we're grown-ups and we're like, we know about the world. We know you're going to need to know this. And they're like, why do I need to know this? And then we're like, because you do. I know. Mm -hmm. It's and helpful. You, you can describe a situation, and they're like, well, I'm not going to do that, because I'm going to be a right. firefighter. Yeah, and you're like, well, then you probably won't do the thing I said, but you probably will add some numbers together at some point. Right. You will, at the very least, need to calculate a tip at some point. In yeah, life. and the, the math textbook would have some kind of really silly word problem about how many gallons of water you need to bring to the fire. Or if the age of individual people if you're given arbitrary uh, facts about how they're combined. Yeah. <laughs> right, and you'd be like, well, that's not reasonable. And it's not. But it turns out numbers are an extremely powerful way of describing the world, right? And mm -hmm. as programmers, as anyone who's thinking about game development or game systems, mm -hmm. whether you're programming or designing, mm -hmm. you're going to ultimately decompose things into numbers because it's one lens through which we can analyze stuff. And in making a game, you are, in fact, describing a world. Yeah. A particular world that doesn't exist unless you describe it. Right. Using math in ways to describe, for example, positions of things and how things move is incredibly useful. Right, yeah, and you, you're going to use all the tools at your disposal to describe this world. Mm -hmm. And some of those ways are with pictures. Yeah. Somebody will draw pictures and then somebody else will put them somewhere in the world, or maybe you'll do both. But at some point they have to be somewhere and you have to describe where that somewhere is. Yeah. But then there's easier day-to-day -day life. And as a grown-up map teacher, I have to admit that it is relatively rare at this point in my life that I actually solve an equation for a variable. Mm -hmm. That I go through the steps of manipulating an equation to, like, solve for a variable. Without having a kid next to you. Right, yeah. And... It's relatively <laughs> common that I actually do it. But <laughs> but it does happen. Um, mm -hmm. And it happened to me just, uh, just on Friday. Um, mm. I was working on a spreadsheet for a budget for a grant proposal. Mm -hmm. And I had to determine what percentage of the program budget I was going to call an administrative mm, budget mm -hmm. but I actually I knew the percentage of the total budget and I had to go from knowing the percentage of the total budget to knowing the percentage of the program budget oh, I and see. this is not hard mm -hmm. but I couldn't figure it out without thinking Right, And I went up to the whiteboard and I started just writing out things and shuffling symbols around, right. which is what you do. Right. And it's funny because people think of, well, by people, I mean kids. <laughs> right. But which we all were. Right. And the opinions of which many people never change because they haven't examined it since then. Right. But a thing that kids think about doing algebra and writing various symbols and moving them around and stuff is kids tend to think that that is this hard work that you have to do and then you get an answer. And if they can just get straight to the answer first, then all that work is completely un unnecessary and stupid. And you're like, I don't want to have to write it down and write down these steps. Right. When 
in actuality getting the answer is the hard part and that is the cheating method like right. writing down these series of steps and actually writing them out which no kid wants to do that's cheating yeah, imagine if you <laughs> gave someone algebra questions in a class and you never taught them algebra mm. but you gave them these questions and you graded them on their successful answers. And then you just, like, sneakily had some kid bring in this set of techniques that they could use to cheat on the test. Right. And they took a piece of paper <laughs> under the desk. Yeah. And they're, they're like, copying down different lines. They're like, okay, I'm moving this over there. I'm going to add this to both sides, so yeah. on and so forth. And then they get their answer right the whole time. Yeah. And they're then the cheating. teacher's like, you're, you're cheating. <laughs> you use these symbols and numbers to very easily come up with an answer. And that's actually what's happening. It's the easy way. Right. It is, is exactly equivalent. Using algebra and symbols and pen and paper to solve an algebra problem is exactly equivalent to using a calculator to solve an arithmetic problem. Mm-hmm. Only you should use a pencil because you will make a mistake. Oh, I like to leave the mistake and cross it out with uh, a line so I can still see it. Oh. I don't like erasing mistakes. Well, that's really useful if you want people to see what a mistake looks like. Which is more useful if you were teaching. I like to refer to my mistakes. Because mm. what if it wasn't really a mistake? Oh, yeah, that's true. I use pens frequently oh. to do that as well. But yeah, so algebra is great. Yeah, well, this is the trick. The crazy thing that no one ever taught you as a math teacher, probably, mm. is that no one ever said that algebra is a series of tools to make it so you don't have to use your brain to solve math problems. Yeah, it's so much easier if you write it down and don't have to have yeah. it in your head. And, of course, kids who think they're really smart have a lot of, like, psychological identity built into the idea of being smart. And so they're like, I can just use my brain. My brain is so mm, great. Right. And I don't know. You get a little old and you're like, I don't want to use my brain. <laughs> My brain is busy. Yeah, I got stuff to do. I'm thinking about that Game of Thrones episode. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is that kids... Um, uh, hold on, I'm going to come back around to this. All right, just swing hold by. On. I'm coming around on the next pass. I'm coming back. The other thing is that kids, when they're learning arithmetic... Yeah, yeah. Elementary school. Right, elementary school, arithmetic Ish, learning yeah. ages. They are sort of rewarded for doing things as quickly as possible and writing things down and writing it out or like counting on your fingers is the sign of weakness somehow. Right, yeah, you're supposed to be able to solve these problems in your head and it's right. good to eventually develop that skill so I get where they're coming from. Right, but you want to be able to know what 3 times 7 is really quickly. It's 20. But, I mean, it's a seven, so you can't really trust it. Yeah, you it. can't tell. You can't go backwards. Uh, <laughs> it's called division. You can. So you do want to be able to look down and see three times seven and know it's 21 very quickly. Right. You do want that. Yeah. But I nice. don't think it's right to learn that it is more valuable to do it quickly and not... Like, you should be able to, say, type that into a calculator when you're younger, and then eventually you will see that pattern enough times that it will just be memorized. Yeah, well, school values quickness in a bunch of different contexts, mm -hmm. and it values quickness on top of quickness mm -hmm. because it says you should be able to answer these math problems quickly. Right. And then it says you should be able to reach the point where you can answer these math problems quickly. Quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, That's true. And they give you, you know, 100 fact sheets, a 10 by 10 grid of addition problems, and they're single digit and right. that's all of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's it. You just did the addition tables. Right. Except that some of them are the same. Yeah. Because they have to be. Three times seven and seven times three are the same thing. Yeah. So they're on there twice. All of the math problems. I don't know why they do this. Yeah. It's kind of infuriating, and your goal is to just do them as quickly as possible. And they're trying to get you to practice doing them, but mostly it's just training you that you have to do this as quickly as possible. Right. The thing that they are getting you to practice doing is not a thing that needs practice. Or rather, if it does need practice, it's going to happen because they have to keep going to math for, you know, ten more years. Right. But I guess what I mean... And this gets to the other uh, thing I wanted to talk about, about education and news in my job, mm. is that there is this mistaken notion in education that performing the task or doing the, you know, getting the math problem right mm -hmm. is the hard thing. Mm. So one of my students had, well, almost all of my students have had incredibly negative interactions with the school system at some point in their life, because well, that's yeah. why they're my students. Right. But one of my students recently did, and the guidance counselor at the school said something along the lines of, 
he's a smart kid and he just refuses to try. Mm. And so we're not gonna help him, basically. Huh. He's just stubborn and refuses to try. Huh. And this statement from anyone involved, like, that's a statement that I will make in casual conversation mm. over dinner or mm. hanging out with colleagues, right? Right. Because it's like, you get annoyed, you get grumpy, uh-huh. and you're like, why won't he just just flip and try <laughs> right <laughs> he could do it i know he could yeah, yeah and yeah. you get annoyed well that was me as a kid. i didn't try right. but and for some kids you know they just don't want to try and sometimes that's because they're one doing other things mm-hmm. sometimes it's because they hate you and you're their teacher mm-hmm. and so you are certainly never going to get them to try because they mm-hmm. win by not trying in this fight right. they've invented <laughs> of, right. that is unfortunately a bigger deal to them than you and is destructive to them and so. Right. And you also have other things that you need to worry about. And right. so, you know, deciding to have that fight that they've decided to have is something that you have to do. Right. And then eventually you just sort of stop trying to have that fight. Yeah. And they're like, I win if I don't try. And you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> I can't win. Right. I mean, you lose if you don't try. Right. Yeah. And then that's the thing, right? You're not actually in conflict with each other. But school has a system of creating a feeling of authority where students frequently feel that they're in conflict with teachers mm. when in some ideal world you would feel like you were collaborating on learning things. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of reasons why kids don't try is the point. But for someone to say that in like a really earnest way it just seems to fundamentally misunderstand what is hard about school hmm. or learning or anything. Okay. And what is hard is not getting a math problem right. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes that's hard. But yeah. what's really hard is working on a math problem until you get it right. Mm-hmm. Like, what's really hard is trying. Right. And so if a kid can't try, if a kid is not successfully trying, mm-hmm. that's because trying is extremely hard. Right. And, and that's what you should be trying to help them do. Right. And that's what's really happening in a lot of the cases, because schools just... Schools cannot produce the level of one-on-one attention that every kid needs. So the kids who tend to do well in school are the kids who are getting that one-on-one attention somewhere else. Right. Either at home or they're being tutored or something like that. Yeah. So you can throw all the money you want at the problem in a school and you can get fancy tools and all this stuff, but really somebody sitting there and being like, no, just sit down and work on it for another few minutes and then you might get it or try for a few more minutes and maybe I'll come and help you at the end of that is way more powerful because it's hard to do hard things. Yeah. Well, and not even just try for another few minutes, but one of the things that's really hard is hard for grownups too, because a lot of people go through just huge amounts of school and huge amounts of work without doing hard things Mm. that what it means to try like like you can say try for another few minutes right but actually at some point someone needs to sit down and say this is what it means to be working on this problem this is what it means to try right and and it's funny because solving problems is solving problems sort of no matter what they are and we've talked a little bit about how any given thing is kind of like any other thing if you go far enough into it. Right. Uh, We mentioned this, I think, last week, but it's because, you know, you are solving a problem. That is the hard thing. And knowing how to approach a problem, whether it's an algebra problem or a programming problem or anything is something that it's really worth thinking about. It's thinking about how you're thinking about it, how you're coming at it from different angles, depending on the problem. I mean, sometimes there's a very small number of possible approaches, and sometimes there's a lot of them. Right. In in certain ways, they decompose to, like, a similar set of techniques, Mm -hmm. which and they're very abstract techniques. It's like, poke the problem in a couple different ways Mm -hmm. and see what happens to it. Right. Um, And that's very abstract, because it means very different things. Right. And speaking of some people never having to actually face a problem, I mean, they're very good at math because they've memorized their fact sheets. They can spell it out very quickly. There's a particular math book that we both very much like called The Art of Problem Solving. Yes. Which is a fantastic math book and series of math books that is hard. Yeah. It's hard because it actually presents hard problems that you have to be able to work through. And it actually presents its textbook part as a series of problems. It's a math book. Uh, There's one called The Art of Problem Solving, and then there's one for every 
topic essentially yeah, is an I mean, algebra like broken one. down into western american school topics right, right. so there's a pre-algebra one an algebra one yeah. a pre-calc and, and it's funny because they yeah. i think in their pre-calc one they say something like it's not really obvious what pre-calc is no it's before <laughs> calculus <laughs> so here's some stuff yeah for me pre-calc was essentially learning about a bunch of different functions yeah that was it. In calculus, you have to then go take derivatives of them. Right. You have to have this sense of what a function is. And right. And so that's primarily what yeah. pre-calc was. And you want to graph things and whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. And so there's trig functions in there and yeah. stuff like that. But I've taught kids out of the pre-algebra book a number of times in the algebra book. And it's very funny because kids who were very good at math because they have been very good at yeah. answering the questions quickly and yeah, getting through it. Yeah, because they had a brain where that was good at performing arithmetic computations fast. Right. And they get to this, and they're starting to learn about algebra, and it starts off very simple, because it actually starts with addition. Yeah. One plus one is, you know, it starts... Well, I mean, its first problems are like two plus three, three plus two. Right. (laughs) One plus one plus three. (laughs) Right. And then they're like... One plus three plus one. Ha ha. And they're really easy problems. And the kid's like answering them like, why are you asking me this? And before you're out of addition, (laughs) they are just kind of baffled already. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because the goal is to present this notion that you can reorder math problems, Mm -hmm. reorder addition problems, and then let's give you some problems where you really need to reorder them. And you really have to think about them in order to reorder them. Right. And they've done a very good job of selecting problems to give to you. You never have to do the same thing twice. Right. So it's it's a very good set of problems it's very well curated and it's very funny because kids who are very good at math get there and they're like oh my god this is hard i actually have to think and it's very challenging for them yeah but ultimately they're learning and it's it's very helpful but one of the best things is that if you take a kid who is always bad at math and give them the same book it's the same for them yeah they're used to struggling right but at the end of it, they have so much understanding about how numbers work yeah. and how they can be manipulated and how you can come up with an answer. They're good at struggling. I think, ultimately, kids who are bad at math have a better time with this book yeah. than anyone who's good. No, you really have to work through it with them. And I've seen examples where their parents were never particularly good at math. And so they go home and they do the math assignment that I'd given them. And they work with their parent for right. like hours. And like, I, that's so hard. <laughs> it's so great because, well, it's awesome when they actually do their homework. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's funny because I never did homework in school, <laughs> but I, I hated it. Yeah, well, when you it teach, you realize that some of the things that teachers were trying to do made sense. Yeah. But they weren't working. Right. And some <laughs> of the things didn't make sense. Right. And, and it all gets kind of smushed together into right. this big thing. And it's also interesting because if, if your goal is understanding, then tools that people use to help people get to understanding that they try to apply to people who already understand it is not helpful right like i always felt like i understood what was going on in my classes Mm -hmm. but i had no interest in doing the homework because i understood what was going on in the classes right and so i just didn't like i listened i paid attention in class and i didn't do the homework there's a great in in i think it was u.s history in high school i had an a test average and a classwork average and a zero percent homework average one of the times right and i came up to the teacher and she's like I I was like, yeah, you'd think I would have done one of them along the way. <laughs> what I said. She's like, yeah, you would have thought. But my test average is fine. She's like, yeah. And, and I think from her perspective, she was supposed to be able to say things like, well, if you don't do your homework, you won't understand the subject matter. Right. But for me, that was not true. In that particular instance, I've had counterexamples, but... Right. And one of the things that's hardest as a learner Mm -hmm. is knowing, like, how to learn... So, one of the things that's a problem with homework in school is that educational resources are not directed towards you very well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're using a textbook. It's going to designed to go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And everyone who is ever using it starts at point seven. You know, somewhere between point one and 100. Right. No one starts on point A. Right, right. It's like an averaged out description of everyone's understanding of math. So I wouldn't do my homework, but I would read the encyclopedia. But so no educational resources are directed to you. Mm Mm-hmm. And that means that half the time, you know, some percentage of the time, everyone is being taught things that they already know by the resource that they're trying to use. Mm -hmm. And then some percentage of the time, they're being taught things that are over their head. 
Right. And learning how to navigate that problem is extremely useful. And school tries to teach you how to navigate that problem by just putting you there and letting you suffer. Um, <laughs> like, well, do, right. do it. Or by having understanding parents at home who are then able right. to help you through the deep water and give you good coping techniques for when they're asking you to do boring stuff that you right. already know. Right. So, like, for instance, when I was a freshman in college, I, well, I failed most of my classes. But this is primarily because I took zero exams. Uh, <laughs> Arguably not the best strategy. For... There was a lot that was not good about my college strategy. Uh-huh. But I failed both of my classes. But the one that I really earnestly failed was chemistry. Oh, okay. Um, I sort of didn't really fail my other classes because I learned them. Oh, okay. The one I totally didn't learn was mm, chemistry. Okay, okay. And that's because I went to lectures for a little while and I was like, I just know all this. This was all covered in high school. This is boring and uh... stupid. And I'd like kind of half pay attention and I'd do the problem sets, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, halfway in, because when it was like MIT freshman chemistry, it wasn't that hard because it was freshman chemistry, <laughs> but it was designed to be difficult. Right. It's a little bit like all these classes are slightly hazing classes, so they're like mm. designed to get really hard at some point. Oh, yeah. yeah. They just uh, have a sudden peak. One of the goals of all MIT freshman oh. classes is to take kids who think they're smart and make them feel dumb. So you're suffering from the first order optimal <laughs> strategy problem. Yeah. As seen in most terrible video games. That's a claim that I'm going to retract <laughs> a little bit, but it is seen in some terrible video games where the thing that gets you through the first half of the game yeah. suddenly stops working. It stopped working. working, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, oh shit. And then I had to develop a bunch of psychological lies, like mm. defense techniques, and be like, well, I didn't really want to learn it anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it's like kids when you tell them about how their scratch yeah. project could be improved. They're like, oh, but I like it when you just get halfway across the screen and can't go anymore yeah, for some just, reason. It's just another failure it's state. It's just neat. I like it. But they don't say failure state. <laughs> they don't say failure state. But they do say, I like it like that. They're, yes. <laughs> As um, a way or that's of, how I want it. Right. That's a good which, one. Which isn't how they want it, but it's an right. easier way to get out of doing something hard. Yeah. And I always tell kids when they say that, I say, I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to fix it now. I'm not going to make you fix it, but let's not pretend that it's not broken. (laughs) Like, admitting something is broken is different from promising to fix it. Yeah, that's true. And maybe the failure state thing is an interesting thing about education and how maybe they have come out of this whole thing where they do have to fix anything that is broken. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you can't just leave something be, and you can't be like, this is as done as it's getting. Which is silly, because actually in life, nothing is ever any more done than it's getting. Do you think any video game you've ever played is actually exactly what the people who are making it wanted it to be? Yeah. Basically, no. Maybe Portal. (laughs) (laughs) There's another podcast that I listen to, and I haven't listened to them in a while, because they took a while off and weren't making episodes, Mm. but I think I just noticed that they had some new episodes. It's called The Debug Log. Oh, you were Um, telling me about that. They're a video game programming podcast. They started primarily talking about Unity, because they were all Unity developers. Okay. But then I think at some point during the podcast, they all ended up getting jobs where they started using other tech, so they talk more more in general terms now. But one of the people on the podcast was previously a graphic designer, Mm. And I think he described his job as a graphic designer as, like, moving text around until the deadline. Because uh, <laughs> you could always change it. Yeah. And it could always be a little better. Right. And it's really important when you're working on any project just to figure out how you can get it done enough that you can move on to something else. Yeah. And then if you have time, you can come back. I right. mean, we did that with Starbridge Man. Yeah. You know, and we talked extensively about this the last time. But, like, it's not done. No. By any means. Even when we pushed the update. Yeah, yeah. It's still not done. Right. Could... It's, even in its most basic version, it is not done. Right. Like, it needs music. Yeah. And at this point, it's done enough, and mm-hmm. I actually don't want to finish the basic version, probably. Right. I don't think it's really worth that. The, Although, maybe we could throw have, music on. Yeah, I have learned enough about the system mm-hmm. to know that there's some stuff in it that I love. Mm-hmm. that I would like to put in something else. Yeah. Right? And that's a thing that as grown-ups working on our own project to learn stuff, we get to say. We get yeah. to say, I'm done with this. Right. It's not perfect. Hey, you want to check out this thing I did? It's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would hope that my programming students feel similarly that they can say, I don't want to finish this game. 
Right. I want to start something new. I've learned something from this game. Right. And of course, giving up because it gets hard and starting something new over and over again is its own problem. Right. And sometimes I struggle with that as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> There's the whole saying that 80% of the work is in the last 10% of the project or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. There, I believe that gets quoted with a different percentage right. every time. But well, there is the Pareto principle, mm. which is that like 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the way. Mm. I've heard of them as 80-20 rules. Okay. And that's like the general right. thing. And the idea there is that you can put a little bit of work into something and get it mostly shaped like yeah. you kind of want it to be. Yeah. Like I've, I've been sewing a shirt Mm-hmm. And it's, like, very close to being most of a shirt. Like, yeah. there's a front and a back. And I think if... Well, you showed up, so I didn't finish the part that I was working on tonight. But, like, I don't know. I mostly started it yesterday. Anyway, it has recognizable shirt-like qualities at this point. Yeah. Well, and that's why the beginnings of projects are so fun, mm. right? Because you're like, oh, my God, I'm just blazing through this. Right. <laughs> that's so amazing. Yeah. And then you start hitting slogs. But Right. Yeah, like, I think at the end of the first day for Starbridge Man, you could both fly around in yeah. outer space it, and it, walk it around great. in the... We had basically finished it. Right. Except nothing <laughs> actually worked secretly. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, they weren't really unified. But you could yeah. fly around in space. You could walk around in the ship. You had some animation. And then we spent two more days before not a lot of difference between those those yeah. two things. But then recording all the boss dialogue and all of that stuff came later. And you don't need that in order to do anything. But you as a player, I think, need it in order to know why you're doing anything or what's Yeah, happening. and that decision was a really interesting one. The decision mm-hmm. to do audio there. Because mm-hmm. in some ways it's a terrible use of time. But in other ways it's the thing that really stood out yeah, for we, that project. Almost every comment on um, the Ludum Dare page was like, oh, great voiceover. Well, there's that one confusing one where it said, it said I give, gave you three stars because of the voiceover yeah. in audio. And I was like, does that mean you don't like the audio? But I think what they were saying... I'm going to interpret it this way, right. anyway. <laughs> was that there was no sound. There were oh, no sound I effects. See. There was no... Right, we had crappy audio, but, but we had a voiceover. There was a voiceover. Yeah. And they liked that. Right, that so, makes sense. So they gave it three out of... You know, they didn't give it zero. Right. And we could have opted out of the audio category, but right. I specifically didn't. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and, and we're kind of like circling around this. There's this process of doing hard things. There's this process of learning to try and learning to fail and like smashing up against stuff. We hit with education, but you also... Right, so I like to say that games are teaching tools, that all games are educational, that what you were doing when you were playing a game is learning. Mm-hmm. It might not be usefully educational, right? <laughs> so, like, my, my students are like, can I play this game? And I'm like, no, you can't play a game. We, we got work to do. And they're like, mm-hmm. but it's educational. I'm like, yeah, everything's educational. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, any halfway decent game is educational. Right. Well, like, I've learned... <laughs> what all those Hearthstone mechanics do. Right, and and to a certain extent, right, there's games that are, like, marketed as educational, like Math Blaster. Oh, and then there's that website that just has Cool math games. (laughs) Cool math games. It is not math, but kids point at it and say, it's math games, see? It's on coolmathgames.com. Yeah, it's a weirdly ingenious thing. Yeah. That I don't, I don't know who's behind it, but kudos to you. Right, but it's very weird because why, like, what value marketing wise do children present now you can market things to children and they will get their parents to buy them but i don't know how yeah, they yeah, yeah. know or what right there's something weird about the internet marketing ad the whole thing seems like something that cannot possibly actually be working right it's happening but nonetheless people are just pouring enormous amounts of wealth into it yeah i don't get it um, and maybe that's just true maybe we as a society have developed just a lot of wealth that we can pour into random things yeah but it must work it, i don't know yeah because they keep like, doing it. Banner ads on coolmathgames.com <laughs> cannot be selling very many products. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it'd be interesting. I would love access to those numbers. Only Google has access to those numbers, more or less. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. But so, so this way that games are these teaching tools, and games are better paced learning experiences than the vast majority of traditional education experiences. Yeah, that's true. And they create these like kind of personalized learning narratives. Well, um, I will say that is true, but that's because mostly what we're going to think about is games that are good. Yeah, that that's we fair. Remember. Yeah, there's crappy games that are bad. That's, so yeah. one way a game can be bad is if it is inadequate at teaching the player how to play it. Right, yeah. There's lots of other ways a game can be bad, but that mm. one 
one is very common. But we're not mostly talking about the bad ones when we're saying games do this thing well. Yeah, that's fair. So games give you this, this experience, and games are for a lot of kids. The first thing that they do that they succeed at that's really hard. Mm. That they remember, maybe, because walking is probably hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know. well, everything you do in the first year right. yeah. of your life. To Not crying because the world is terrible is probably hard. Well, yeah, you just cope with that. At, at a certain point, you just stop crying. <laughs> for some people. Yeah, <laughs> you cry less. <laughs> but in memory, I think that probably, if I was to pull many of my students, I was like, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Mm-hmm. I think many of them would be like Super Meat Boy. Yeah, yeah. That uh, game's great. Um, and, Getting to space as a potato. And it's not because they haven't done other things. It's not mm-hmm. because they haven't done perfectly adequately in schooly type things. Mm-hmm. It's that like the processing games of doing something over and over again until you get it right is extremely memorable and extremely hard. Right. Um, but the weird thing is that it creates this like really personalized experience where you you do the thing and you get this immediate feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's both really good practice for learning other things, but mm. also really bad practice because it kind of makes you feel like if you... Like, games are really fun in part because they create satisfaction mm-hmm. at a relatively constant rate. You're like, right. if I put in some effort, I'm going to get some satisfaction. Right. Um, and we've discussed how that can backfire. Yeah. But like in life, other hard things don't have the same linear constructedness. Right. Right. But also the thing about games is that they have this really clear feedback loop. Yeah. So that you can understand that you have failed very quickly and be set up right away again in the position that you need to be in in order to try again. Super Meat Boy is a fantastic example of this because when you die, you run into your saw blade, it's like less than two seconds before you're right at the start of the level again and you can go. And they're very short levels. Most of them are very short levels. So you can just be trying again immediately and get to that same hard part again. It's not like, I don't know, a tower defense game. Oh, God. Tower defense games <laughs> I are... realized we're going there and yeah. Are terrible. So annoying. Yeah, well, because it's like 15, 20 minutes per level and so then by the time you lose because of some condition that you didn't know about a new right. enemy you type. made a decision on wave two when on wave seven it turns out there's flying things right and you're like oh i didn't build any towers that can kill flying things yeah. i'm gonna lose but that's 10 minutes in right and that's not good design. yeah and then what you do the next time around if you're me is you have the like first order strategy of any level is to build the most versatile things and get mm. as far as possible right until you die but then you're like, okay, I have a sense of how this goes. Right. Because I built I built stuff that could handle anything. Mm-hmm. But it couldn't handle the special thing at the end. Yeah, that's no right. good. Tower defense games, I really enjoy and really hate. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some work that could be done. Well, it, it tickles my desire to be building something. Yeah. In a way that is hard for a lot of other games. And every round, you feel like you're building it and you're working on it. Well, they're like death factories, right? It's right. like this little conveyor belt that moves people through when they get maimed and destroyed. <laughs> that's accurate. And that's great. Yeah, yeah. I built a little death factory. Right. If you could rewind time and fix a mistake that you made near the end of the level... That would be so much better than having to restart from the very beginning. There's also a really terrible positive feedback loop in most tower defense games Mm -hmm. where you get resources by killing things. Yeah. So if you are ahead of the game at the beginning, then you're doing great. And if you fall behind a little bit, you just stay fallen behind and fall more and more behind and it's awful. Yeah, I bet there's something interesting there that you could do if perhaps there were things that you could kill that weren't dangerous. Mm. Um, And you could invest some resources in, like, a rapid... uh, Like, in Warcraft 3, there's the monsters that wander around. Uh, The creeps. The creeps, yeah, right? If there were creeps in a tower defense game, and they were weaker, and they didn't try to kill you, but you could invest some time building towers to kill the creeps, which Mm. would get you a spike of gold. But the towers you would use to kill creeps quickly would be different from the towers you would use to kill... Because the creeps are weaker, so it would be, like, rapid fire, low damage things or something. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Then there would be, like, this trade-off where you'd be like, is it worth investing? Right. But the problem is that doesn't help with the positive feedback loop because that should theoretically always be available to you unless it becomes more available if you fail Um, somehow yeah i guess it does insofar as it makes if the most effective way to make money Mm. is not by investing in your defense okay then the best way to make money is by investing in killing these creeps right the best way to defend is by investing in these bigger beefier things 
Or you could just have SCVs. Right, yeah. I, I, I may have just reproduced... Starcraft. Um, in the context of Tower Defense game, which you know might right. be interesting, might not be. Right. So I always loved playing Starcraft and the older Warcrafts as building up a base. And I yeah. hated Warcraft 3 because you couldn't just right, you build a big send base. your little dude around. And you had a very tiny total number of things you could build. So they put this cap and mm. you're like, oh, I can't build another oh, defense yeah. tower. I have to go send my crew out, which is probably a better way to play, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to build a big monstrous base with many things that would kill everything automatically. That's my preferred way to play, so I loved tower defense games, because that's what they were. In fact, tower defense games were invented as custom maps for StarCraft and Warcraft. Yeah, I think Um, the first one I played was desktop tower defense, which is really fun, and it's not that, but... I don't know if it just came after that. I played a lot of StarCraft maps that were tower defense custom maps where, you know, every mm. time you killed something, you get some gold and you could, or minerals. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you could place your towers and you would make decisions about all kind of towers and, you know, all the StarCraft units. It was interesting. So, yeah, I wanted to, like, bring that point about trying around learning back to games because I think it's really interesting because games produce this trying experience and this learning experience, but they do it in this way that's really, really satisfying and that's really great. People who are creating learning experiences should definitely think about games and mm. why games work. And people who are thinking about making games should think about making learning right, experiences. You should think about the fact that you're producing a learning experience. People who are trying to learn things should consider the fact that many of the things that they are trying to learn from are poorly designed Mm. and you still want to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I think the trap of there being really well-designed learning experiences is the creeping expectation that all learning experiences must be designed well and that a poorly designed learning experience means you don't want the content when, in fact, sometimes you want the content Mm. and you just have to slog through a badly designed experience because maybe it's the best one. Maybe it's the only one. Right. And I teach myself things all the time. And was talking about this when talking about learning Selenium. And the internet, just Googling things about Selenium, is not a good learning experience. But it's the one you have. (laughs) Right. Uh And I kept hoping that I would come across the best thing for that. And I just didn't. I did find a thing that I would have to buy, and I haven't bought it yet. Somebody wrote a book, and it is supposed to be good. It starts with the premise of, you don't know anything, and it's hard to Google things. Yeah. So it might be the tool that I need, but I haven't really looked into it too much. All right. I want to take a break, and then... Yeah, that sounds great. Wrap things up. See you soon. (laughs) And we're back. We are. You can tell. You're yeah, back. I'm back. Yeah. You can tell because we're talking. Yeah. So, what do we want to talk about? So, there was other news, but it was news connected to our oh. game topic. Uh, yes. Which was that you and I and oh. some friends. Oh, our game topic, like, the game-related topic that we want to talk about in oh, this podcast. Oh, yeah. So, every podcast, we have a topic which we then don't talk about for a long time. Right. In this case, about 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, if you are curious how much of our normal discourse is not interesting to you and we choose to to cut it out, you could do the math on how long the recording between now and the break was. We cut out, I'd say, like 15 minutes of ums and ahs in every episode. Which is like seven or eight hundred ums. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that was one right there. <laughs> he might not come out. But now I have out. to leave that one in. <laughs> so we had this plan. The topic we wanted to talk about was playing games as social engagement. And that is playing games in the same room with each other. Yeah. So where multiple people show up at the same place and all play the same game together, whether cooperatively or competitively. Right. And I'm just going to say right now that I think those are not distinct concepts. Cooperation and competition? Yeah, because if you and your friends aren't all cooperating on having a good time... Mm. Either your friends should stop hanging out with you, or you should stop hanging out with your friends. (laughs) They're basically equivalent. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know whether you're the problem. If you are, cut it out. (laughs) Right, yeah. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay that you got hit by that blue shell. Yeah, that's what the game's about. Right. Speaking of blue shell, (laughs) over the weekend, we, the two of us and some other people, got together and played some Mario Kart. 
Yeah, the new Mario Kart, whatever it is you buy if you type Mario Kart into the Nintendo Switch store. Okay, I wasn't there for that part. I believe it was Mario Kart 8, but who knows? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a lot of them. These they didn't days. just skip it and go to X. <laughs> Although they have to skip 9 and go to X if that's what they're doing. Yeah. For some reason you but cannot... But then they went back and made 9 for Mega Man. Oh, oh, we're talking about Final Fantasy. What are we talking about? Windows? Oh my god. What are Windows, we talking about? <laughs> the Xbox? No, I don't know. <laughs> oh, the Nine Box. <laughs> All of those things. For some reason, people don't believe in giving things the number nine. Yeah. It has got to go to X. So we went and played some Mario Kart at your house. I played some Link Kart. I was Link for some of the Oh, the yeah, because somehow Link made his way into Mario Kart. I don't know when that happened. It probably has to do with Super Smash Brothers and how when they oh, started doing Super Smash yeah. Brothers... And then you get Pikachu sometimes. Yeah, that makes total sense. All these, yeah. So I've never played that game. I really want to play that game. Smash Brothers. Yeah. Oh, I love Smash Brothers. Uh, well, yeah, people love it. I have read a lot about it. So I hated it at first. Okay. Because it's dumb. <laughs> oh. So that's the problem. That makes sense. No, I didn't like that you could hit people just a bajillion times and they wouldn't die. So the reason they don't die is because the goal is to knock them places, is that correct? Right. And so it took some amount of getting used to the idea that my goal was not to hit you until you die, like with every other fighting game ever. Right. But to hit you until you get knocked off the map. Right. And it was a lot easier for me to shift my mind this way when I learned that basically you have two attacks. I mean, you have like a bajillion attacks. But your two most standard basic attacks are hit them so you deal them damage. And then there's another hit that I think of it as dealing less damage, but it might deal the same or more. But the other hit is slower for sure and knocks you farther. Okay. And if you don't hit them with the knocks them harder attack... They essentially don't go anywhere. So what is the point of doing damage in this framework? There is a percentage, which you can go above 100, so it's not quite that. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with improper fractions. Right. It's just that you start at zero, and it goes up as you get hit, and... I don't know why it's a percentage. It's a number that is clearly a multiplier of how far you fly. Oh, okay. So the more damage you are, the more the knockback is. Mm -hmm. But the knockback from the damage attack is so negligible. Right. The one that Um, you do most of the time. And there's like a bajillion attacks and it's gotten bigger and there's more. But if you think about it at its core, there's two attacks and then there's other attacks. But so it's like on a fight scene in TV where you beat someone up for a while and then you do something real badass. Right. Like one once they're, you know, slower and wavering, yeah. it's the finish them move. Right, yeah, the fatality. And the other thing is that there's like a bajillion people on the screen all jumping around right. and so, doing things. Right, and one of the things that I have heard said about Smash Brothers is that it is thought of as a fighting game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's thought of as a party game by some people. It's thought of as a fighting game by other sure. people. I have mostly read stuff about the game as like a serious competitive game. Okay. Where I'll put serious in as many quotes as you need, but... <laughs> Some of those quotes are going to cancel out other of the quotes. It's complicated. Yeah, it's um, hard. I got single quotes, double quotes, <laughs> inverted commas. Who knows? Oh, my God. Somebody threw a tilde in there or that other character that's on the tilde thing. But, you know, in this like competitive gamer world, I, I thought it was interesting to read it described as a platformer, right? Because oh. it's about movement and positioning. and Huh. Well, yeah, there are platforms and you jump on them. Right. Well, and traditional fighting games do have a lot of positional stuff to them. 100%. Like, Street Fighter, mm. despite having a very small play field, has a lot of positional stuff. But Right. And most of your position is how it relates to your distance from your opponent. Plus your distance from the back of the screen. Right. Especially if you are Chun-Li. Oh. Who can bounce off the back of the screen with a jump. Oh, okay. I played very little Street Fighter because it was on the Super Nintendo. Oh, yeah. You may have noticed that I bring up that I didn't have a Super Nintendo <laughs> every time. It's just still true yeah. that I didn't have one. Nope, and you still don't, do that. Still don't. I could get one. My sister took ours. Uh, she claimed the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. Like, it's not a big deal. Because yeah. whatever, they probably don't even work. I bought a Atari. So we had an Atari when I was a kid. And then it vanished or broke or something. And then mm-hmm. years later, my sister and I bought an Atari together on eBay. For oh. like 30 bucks. And it came with like 50 yeah. games or 100 games. And then she's got that. <sighs> 
Sisters. Yeah, I know. What's up with that? Hi, Bethany. <laughs> yeah, I feel a little grumpy about it, in part just because if it was like a child, you would say the person who spent the most time with it, who really cared about it, should get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're the child who spent the most time with it, oh, you would say that. I certainly spent the most... I really cared about that SNES. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But so other fighting games also have positioning things. There's some funny things that they did when they went into 3D, where yeah. it essentially became a 2D fighting game because you orient yourself towards each other. And I don't think this is a bad decision in any way. For which games? Oh, I'm thinking like Battle Arena Toshiden. Okay, yeah, Virtua Fighter. Bushido Blade. Bushido. Well, Bushido Blade is different. Well, you do default face each other. Right, but you can very easily not face each other. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's because um, there's a button that lets you run and it yeah. turns you into a 3D... and Which is different from those other two games. But while you're not holding that run button, yeah, yeah. you no, are I... locked in... Like, down is duck, up is up. Yeah, you know? that's true. So it's also the hardest game to jump in of any game that's fun. <laughs> that's true. I forgot about that. I'm very good at it. Yeah, and so yeah I get that. Whatever. When playing against people, playing I will crap regularly fall into a pit, wait for my friends to fall into the pit, and then jump out of the pit and wait for them to climb out and then cut their head off on their way up. Oh, you because can, they cannot jump out. They can't jump out. They only know how to climb out. Because the controls are terrible. Because the controls are terrible, but I'm very good at them. Yeah. But this is an important part because I did this with other humans that were in the room with me. Yeah, you sure and, did. And that was fun. Many of them I were mean, my, for you. For me, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Many of them were my siblings. I have a lot of siblings. <laughs> Many of them were my cousins. Uh, I have a small number of cousins. So we're talking about Bushido Blade. I think zero of them were ever me. Yeah, I don't think we ever Which played. Which is crazy. Because we have both, right there. We both obviously played the crap out of that I game. Know. I have it somewhere in this apartment. Yeah. No. And I have a PlayStation 4 that it'll probably play on. So yeah. we can play some. And that's the thing that should happen. <laughs> yeah. But I think great. we've almost been saying that for like 10 years. Well, I didn't have a PlayStation for 10 years. That's fair. Well, I, I had a PlayStation 2 that didn't work and I skipped PlayStation 3. Yeah. My PlayStation 2 has a problem with its wire. Oh, the, that's a totally different problem from the normal PlayStation 2 problem, which is with the DVD laser. Oh, yeah. Well, I took pretty good care of mine, but it has some problem where it only puts sound out and doesn't put out video. Oh, that makes it bad for almost all games. Yeah. Well, there's that one game where you're a monster in a pit and yeah. the king feeds you things that have... Yeah, you kill peasant first and then a knight and then a wizard or whatever. Yeah, I haven't actually played that game, but I really want to. I played it with Angelo. Oh. Um, hi, Angelo. He, hi, Angelo. <laughs> Yeah, Angelo told me about the game too. Although possibly we were all living in the same apartment in Brooklyn when I found out about it. So yeah. you might have been Who there. Knows? Who knows? But you play these games with your friends. Right, which is what we're trying to loop back I to. I know, we try so hard. And so you're there in the room and part of your gameplay experience is what happens with the people who are next to you. Yeah. And not anything that is built into the screen or the controller or any of that. Right. So some amount of the experience, it can be facilitated by that game and what kinds of things that can happen. But a lot of what's going on is in the room that the makers of the game have no control over. Right. And the thing that's really interesting is, well, humans really like other humans. I tend to um, agree. Not all humans, not all the time, in either direction. <laughs> right. But in general, most of us like hanging out with other yeah, folks. That's true. Um, but some ways of hanging out are crappy, and some of them are fun. Uh-huh. And the, the thing that's really interesting about games that are really fun to play with your friends is how do they create experiences that are really fun, right? They're creating mm -hmm. social experiences for you to have. Right. Um, mm. And they're also creating game mechanical experiences. Right. But I think that the social experiences far overshadow the game mechanical experiences. That's often true, although you can really have a lot of control over what kind of social experiences are happening by the game. Yes. So here's a good example. Um, I went bowling the other day. Okay. It was not newsworthy, but it is relevant yeah, to this. Yeah, no, I would have brought it up if I'd done it. Yeah, I forgot about it until just now. But I went bowling Where did with, you go bowling? Uh, in Boston somewhere. Oh, all right. There's a place. I try not to cross the river. Yeah, I don't usually, but I did. And so I was in there, and it was very dark in the lane, but the pins were well lit. I don't know. It's interesting. It turns out I'm somehow good at bowling. I mean, I'm not good at bowling, but I'm good. 
really better than average. I'm better than all the people I was bowling with. That's like how I am with chess. Oh, okay. Where I can beat anyone at chess who doesn't play chess, and I can lose to everyone at chess who's ever practiced it. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever played chess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the two of us together as, as opponents. <laughs> I've seen you play chess yeah, with children. I know. We've probably played a game of Bug House together, mm. which is another which fun is, Yeah, it's fun because you're doing it with people. Right. And it's wackier than regular chess, so it's it's yeah. a lighter experience than chess is. Anyway. You went bowling. I, I went bowling with Samantha and some people she works with, and some of which have become my friends. And, yeah. and so it's a game. One of you does something at a time. Yep. Everyone else is, is drinking and eating wings. It's a turn-based drinking game. It is a turn-based drinking game. And it's fun. Like, I can kind of still feel it in this one wrist. Yep. And it's very interesting because the game, the act of participating in the game, is one person at a time and everyone else is just sitting around chatting. Right. So, in that case, the mechanics of the game in almost no way influence the... The interaction. The interactions that you have with your fellow players which I find really interesting I was talking with Samantha about it while we were there and she was saying that basically it's a mechanism for making sure that you change who you're sitting next to every once in a while yeah I was about to say exactly the same thing yeah you have to suddenly get up and run over and take your turn and then you come back and somebody else has sat in your seat so you sit next to somebody else and yep. this was a sort of big group so there were two lanes and each one had six players in it or something so <laughs> You know, there are about 12 people total there. And so you just constantly remix up and talk to different people a little bit. And you now people do it much more seriously, right. competitively. Yeah. I'm not talking about the competitive version. In the same way that I'm not really talking about the competitive version of... Smash Bros. Smash Bros. Smash Brothers. <laughs> I was doing a thing with my hands, so Will was helping me out. about smashing things. Yeah, in the air. But, so that's one way that you can go about making an experience for the players of your game. Right. Is not... Not actually having the game care very much. Yeah. There's a game that we played as undergrads. Well, I wasn't an undergrad at the time. But it was a student co-op in Eugene, Oregon. And there were a bunch of student co-ops. Like five or six of them. Or three or four. I don't know. I'm not going to count in my brain right now. Sure. There was a bunch of student co-ops. And we played a game called Down by the River. Okay. And Eugene, Oregon has a river that runs through it. It's the Willamette. Okay. And the University of Oregon campus is right mm. on the river. Okay. And it's beautiful. And they have produced a beautiful hiking trail along okay. it. And what the game of Down by the River is, is that people split up into groups. Uh-huh. And groups are very small. It's okay. Like one or two or three. I argue one person is not a group, although set theory disagrees. Yeah. And what you do as a group, and this is a drinking game. Oh, okay. What you do as a group is have a prepared alcoholic beverage to share with people. Okay. And you wander up and down the hiking trail on the river. Oh. And then when you run into someone who is also playing down by the river, you (laughs) trade drinks. Uh Uh-huh. And you have some drinks and hang out for a little while. (laughs) So it's sort of like an asynchronous (laughs) multiplayer game. Right, yeah. And it was very funny. Because hanging out and drinking with your friends <laughs> is a very normal activity. Right, that's true. It's especially maybe a normal undergraduate activity. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's a very normal, grown-up American activity. Other parts of the world as well, but referring to the most, country I live in. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But most of the world. It's a very normal, grown-up adult activity. Uh-huh. But Down by the River was really fun, mm-hmm. and it was really special. And it was special because we made a random series of rules. Oh, okay. What the rules would do is cause you to, one, think of it as a certain thing. Okay. Right. We're not just hanging out drinking. Okay. We're playing down by the river. But two, it would change everything up. The rules introduced a lot of kind of random variants. Okay. To the social interaction. Oh, interesting. That's it. That's the whole story. It's like bowling at a larger scale. I would like to hear more about this, but maybe off cast. (laughs) Yeah, I find that acceptable. (laughs) Okay. So at this point, mm. or slightly after we have this to end point, another episode, and we're backtracking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. we have realized that we recorded two episodes, right? Um, which is twice as many episodes as we normally record, right? So we're gonna wrap up now, and we're gonna be lazy and use the same wrap up for yeah. both of them. That sounds fine. So we're going to pick up again next week where we left off. That's right. See you later. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.
Right, the reason you're still listening is because you want to receive instructions. Right, we want to instruct you. You've been waiting you. for what to do. That's true. We would like to instruct you to rate us on iTunes. Yeah. So, whatever you're listening on, it doesn't matter. Right, this is your call to action. I'm calling you to act. And, and this isn't like the, you know, Joseph Campbell where you refuse the call first. I mean, it probably is, but... But you've been called again. Right now. Yeah. And now we're calling again because of something like Aunt Maru and Uncle Owen just died. It's really sad. But now you're getting called to rate us on iTunes. Yeah. That's the one I'm saying specifically. Yeah, we don't care whether you have iTunes installed. Uh, right. Just find a way. <laughs> Just install it. You can install it and uninstall it immediately. <laughs> right. If you do that, you get the special bonus perk of getting Bonjour installed on your Windows machine, <laughs> which oh. will allow you to do certain kinds of networking operations that you couldn't do earlier. Oh, I didn't know any of this because I actually use a Mac. Yeah. Huh. So there you go. But also subscribe in whatever way. How do you like to subscribe for things? Just do it. There's lots of ways. It's up to you. And if you would like, you could send us an email with your questions or comments or whatever. Like, Jeff is getting all of our attention. Yeah, which is great. We like Jeff. Yeah, I like Jeff. You can send us an email at contact at sidequestspodcast.com. That's many side quests, just one podcast. Yeah, and jump on the platform of your choosing and give us as many thumbs, stars, hearts, likes, or uh, anything else as you can give us. Yeah, that's, I think, covered it. If you want to give us, like, significantly fewer than you can, just, just don't. <laughs> so that's it. And goodbye. Yeah, bye. See you later.